0: Turning to Ephesians, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. we we'll to start in verse 3 and just do a read through in order to get our bearings to where exactly it is that we're at. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now real quick. Let's not forget this. When someone hears the gospel and they believe that it's true, so the response to what they're hearing is a confident conviction that it is the truth and therefore they are believing. Forgive me. They now become a child of God and they are now transferred into a location that is known as in Christ. And all of the blessings of God exist in that brand new spiritual plot of real estate. Everybody with me? In Christ is vitally important to understand because it makes a difference in how you read this text. So when we talk about in Christ, remember we're talking about a location. Now watch this. What are these every spiritual blessings like? Well, just as He chose us, where were we when this took place, in Him... That's the location. When did he make the decision? That is the time before the foundation of the world he decided this would happen. Remember that us is a personal, inclusive pronoun, which means that Paul and us, who are believers, are on equal standing in this matter. Just because he's an apostle doesn't mean that he's better. We all, if we're in Christ, have this elevated state and opportunity. So He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. For what? What were we chosen for? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. And I believe that's at a moment in time known as the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema. I don't believe that period's there because verses 3-14 through are a run-on sentence. But we are to be holy and blameless before Him in love, in our love that we exercise. He's given us that ability. When you didn't know Christ... You weren't mandated to love anyone. Now that sounds like the pressure's off for the moment. But the fact is, is you still have those love relationships, even as an unbeliever. But when you become a believer, it's like somebody put a Holy Spirit rocket on your back and shot you into a realm of ability to love people that is nothing short of supernatural. This is how you can survive in a room with a bunch of people. Yes? Yeah, amen! How is that? Because you're not having to conjure up the courage or the fortitude or whatever you think you may need in order to love someone. You simply love them because the wellspring of love has overflowed onto you. And loving people becomes a lot easier than what we try to make it seem. Or let me say this. Because we are just being... In His love, the doing of love flows out of us to other people. If my mind is focused on the fact that God's unconditional love for me is perfect and complete and yes and amen and always and eternal in His Son, and it just so happens that I live in His Son, then my love for other people becomes a much easier thing. The problem is is when I get my eyes off of Christ... And we're trying to exercise love apart from Jesus. That's not possible. It's just not possible. The world's been trying to do it ever since. But it's just not possible. Now last week we saw this. He, this is the Father, He predestined us. Again, notice that Paul includes himself. He predestined us. But what was interesting as we compared Scripture with Scripture, and people have been fighting over this for years, He does not predestine us to go to heaven when we die. And for some people who subscribe to that and they want to take it one logical step further, He doesn't predestine lost people to go to hell when they die. I'll never forget a a guy that I know told me one time that he was at a church giving a presentation and they were kind of doing a, a, a testimony time. And I've told some of you this story before, so just, you know, laugh. Okay, Um, you know. But one guy stood up. He said, I praise God that from the foundation of the world, I was predestined to be saved and go to heaven when I die. He sat down and as soon as he sat down, his wife stood up and she said, I praise God that I've been predestined for the lake of fire before the foundation of the world. And I will go there when I die and sit down. He said he didn't know what to think. See, it's not really a laughing matter, is it? It's kind of scary when you think about it. But if you look through, what has God predestined in Scripture? You find that none of it has to do with heaven and hell issues. Here, we're going to deal with this subject. You say, man, we sure are going slow. Yes, we are, because there's nothing but solid gold in these first few verses, okay? He has predestined us to this, to adoption as sons. You say, well, isn't that go to heaven when you die? Well, let's see what the Scripture has to say. How bold can we make this here? An adoption is sons. In fact, for any of you that are looking for, is it turning out okay? It is turning out okay. If any of you are looking for further notes on this, I posted them this morning uh, up on the pastor's blog. So if you go to the website, you can read through all the things we have posted now about adoption of sons. But what is the adoption of sons? Is it just being brought into the family of God, or is it more? The amazing thing about this is the scriptures have a lot to say. So the first thing that we want to take a look at here is. What is the understanding of the phrase adoption of sons? How should we understand this word? We'll stop and do a little word study of the phrase because what's actually under consideration as is added in, but adoption and sons, they're actually put together here. So here's what the word is. Pyrothasia. okay? You say, well, that doesn't help me at all. It's okay. Doesn't help me either. But here's what I do know. Unger describes it as the placing of a son. If you want a really good book to add to your Bible study library, Unger's uh, Dictionary, Theological Dictionary, excellent work. What's that? Wonderful book. Jerry agrees? I can't be wrong. There it is. It's a great book to add. Buy it used, there's nothing wrong with it. They haven't added anything in the past 30 years. It's going to amount to anything. It was great when he first came out with it. The Placing of a Son Somewhere. Some have understood it as sonship. And some have even touted that this might mean the idea of son placing. To take someone and to place them in a position of a son. For you ladies, don't let that hurt you. It also is the idea of a daughter. But it's not just simply something as a child. It actually has to do with a much more intimate, a much more closer familial relationship and connection than maybe what we've ever understood or comprehended before. Uh, one Greek guy, he says it actually comes from this compound word. The idea of to, to sure, thank you, to place, and we us to be an adult son, to take an adult son and to put them in a significant place. Now, here's what's amazing about this. God determined beforehand that something that he wanted to do, with the corporate body of Christ is to take them and place them in a position where they could always say, I'm not just a child of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I have a close connection with him that is unparalleled to anything that this world would possibly give. Now, here's an amazing thing about this. This further solidifies the idea of acceptance. One of the greatest things that Christians struggle with is assurance of their salvation. Do I know, really, that I'm going to heaven? Is it a locked up and done deal? Or is there something more that I need to be aware of? Or am I doing this right? I'm brand new to all of this. Do I fully understand it? Well, maybe because I sinned in this way, God doesn't love me anymore. Or maybe the love that he was showing to me because this sin was greater than my normal sins that I have, he's decided to take that away because I wasn't worthy of keeping it. The gift of eternal life that he gave me, I I just couldn't, I couldn't handle well. And so he decided that I wasn't worthy of it. People really legitimately struggle with these things. And this is just in my personal experience, but when I've talked to other pastors or or, or teachers or something like that, here's what i found. People will not grow in enjoying their relationship with their Heavenly Father if they're always doubtful of His complete acceptance of them. So let's be very clear about this idea that when Paul uses this word, what God is saying that something that he predetermined to happen. And this is all this is all plural stuff. This isn't any individual here. He's talking about the body of Christ. So believers in Jesus, if you've heard the message of the cross that he died for your sins and you've responded in faith to that, you have eternal life, forgiveness of sins and a myriad of other things, but the big thing we're focusing on now is he actually predestined you once you were in that body to make sure and be part of adopting you as a son of his own. Here's what this means, guys. You are his. He is yours forever, never to be lost. It doesn't matter how much you sin. Oh, calm down. Back the pony up. It doesn't. And that's what we get hung up on. Well, you don't understand. There's got to be remorse and there's got to be repentance and a heartfelt contrition. And oh, you have to grieve over your sin you know what, if your heart and your conscience lead you to grieve over your sin, then praise God, obey it, because our consciences are often all the time in alignment with the leading of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to discredit that. But if we think for some reason that our groveling in the pit of despair over our sin has somehow made us closer to God, or maybe this time it will really take We have just made this entire situation of salvation about our performance before God as the means of acceptance and taken the spotlight off of Jesus completely. If we need anything in our lives, we need more spotlight on Christ. We need more recognition of His work. We need more understanding of the power of His blood. We need more of a greater grasp of... On the idea of grace. That God wasn't obligated to save a person. Not one. No one would have looked at God in eternity and said, wow, this is incredibly unfair, God. How come you didn't save one person? He could have easily turned around and said, because they're all sinners and I'm not. That would have been fair. Praise God he's not fair. Praise God that he's grace. Praise God that He desires to grace our lives and grace our lives and grace our lives. And I don't even care if it gets messy sometimes. He's going to grace us regardless because that's who He is. And He just wants to do great things for His kids. He knows our frame, He's mindful that we are but dust. Psalm 103. He gets the struggle, He gets the frailty. When you sin, when I sin, he's not surprised. He's not surprised. His grace is greater than our sin. One of the great blessings that he's unfolded in his grace is adopting us, bringing us into this understanding of saying confidently, without a shadow of a doubt, I am a son or I am a daughter of God. It is not, I was a son. Until this happened in my life, stop that. If you are always clamoring for the acceptance of God because you have gotten the spotlight off of Jesus, you will never grow. And you will never, never come to a realization of just exactly how much He loves you. He loves you greater than your sin. And your sin is not more powerful than the cross and what He desires to do in Christ. So when we talk about this idea, he has taken us as his children and not just made us children as great as that is, but he has placed us as sons. And the adoption word is used on purpose because the relationship holds a particular significance. Now, for those of you that have been situations dealing with the idea of fostering and foster families, and it leads to the opportunity for adoption and we just talk about it in our american context i believe the context he's talking about here is more of a roman idea because he's writing to the churches that are in the area of ephesus and they would have had this roman dominance that's over them okay probably not a jewish mindset i don't think but in doing this we understand that the idea is wait a second this wasn't a biological production of our family but because of the adoption in place It has brought the child fully into the family. Even going as far as to taking the last name is a new designation of identity over them. We do that because it's a semblance of what God has done for us. I guarantee you this. His adoption of us came before any of the adoptions that we would draw it from happened. Understand that. So, the interesting thing about this is this is used five times in the New Testament and what's great about this, it really makes the study easy for us is Every time, it's only Paul who uses it. No one else uses it but Paul. So now, before we search that out, what does a first century view of adoption look like? William Barclay says this, the person, and think about it real quick, let your mind into this, okay? The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and lost absolutely all rights in his old family family now let that sit on your mind for a little bit because this is the sweetness of salvation and you want to get all of it okay in the eyes of the law he was a new person so new was he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they never existed Don't you wish that Visa had an adoption program? All debts and obligations? I don't even know who that person is. In fact, isn't that one of the reasons why some people go to great lengths to conceal their identity and change their names and move to different places? Is when they find themselves so far in a debt that they know there's no way that they can handle it, that they actually commit an identity fraud in order to be out from under the weight. I love it because God's transference plan is free. Somebody else already paid the price. And what's amazing about the first century adoption idea is that whoever you were B.C., before Christ, is gone. You see, I don't feel like that. Praise God, your salvation doesn't rest on your feelings. Don't worry. At some point in this study, we're going to get to the F train. We're going to deal with it, okay? It's going to come back up. You can't not get on the F train and walk through Ephesians, okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. Stay tuned. God has dispelled the old you. He doesn't need it. He's not going to use it. It's never going to be of advantage or benefit of him to take former us and do something brand new. You ever had something to where maybe you were at somebody's house, you were going to eat it, but you knew you didn't like it. And so you were asking for the Heinz 57 or the A1 or ketchup or Frank's hot sauce or something like that. Because you were going to douse this because you thought, you know what? If I put enough of this on there, I can eat anything. It doesn't matter how much we try to cover up the old man, the old us. God ain't going to eat it. God doesn't need it. He has no appetite for it. In fact, let me give you Jesus' words on it. The flesh profits nothing. Anybody know what the Greek word for nothing means? Nothing. Absolutely zero. Which means that when I come to plans of how I'm going to make something happen and it originated in me and it's not from the leading of the Spirit, here's one thing I know off the bat. God ain't going to use it. What God has done in adoption is something totally brand new. Here's a quote about first century view of adoption from our friend Tony Evans. He says, In the ancient world, Adoption took place when a person was an adult. See, that's what's interesting. It wasn't when they were an infant. They would actually have to come to a full term of existence in connection with this family. But when they got to adulthood, it was like a ceremony where they were ushered into an opportunity of full rights. We're going to see that. Adoption conferred on the adoptee the full rights and privileges that came with being the child of the adoptive parent. Adoption also put the adopted child in line to be a full heir of the father. Now, let's talk about this real quick with the idea of sons, real quick. We know from the Old Testament we deal with the idea that Adam was considered a son of God because he was a special creation of his. We also deal with the idea that there were the sons of God who are celestial beings. They all shouted for joy. They were the cheerleaders when God was creating everything. They were so jazzed about creation, it was unbelievable. In fact, we know when the sons of God present themselves before the Lord, Satan is one of them, and he comes and does a presentation before the Lord as well. What in the world all that looks like? I don't have a clue. But the idea is, is they're designated as sons of God of God. If we take our Bibles and we would just turn to the left a few books to Romans and we come to chapter 9 we see one of the off instances of being a son of God because it deals with Israel and not the church. However that doesn't make it any less true. If you want to mark these down that's fine we're going to read these contextually but it's not a bad thing to have the particular references written down. In chapter 9, look at verse 3. This is Paul talking. He's got grief because the Jews are not coming to faith in Christ. It's their Messiah. Why in the world are they not coming to faith in Christ? And he goes through and he lists off the reasons why they should be coming to faith in Christ. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. The word separated is not in the original. It was added to help give some clarification. I think here it muddies the waters. He's not talking about going to hell. That's not the idea for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong. And notice the very first thing. There's eight things that he brings up here. But the very first thing he wants to bring up is the fact that they've been adopted as sons. They were God's son. In fact, if you look at Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my son." Understand the difference there. He uses the singular term son to speak of the entire nation. So Israel is God's chosen people. We have no problem with that. The Bible teaches that inside and out. However, the church is not Israel. This is one instance that we see here. The next one we look at is Galatians 4.5. So if you turn over to the right, it's actually the book right before Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is making this argument about what the things of this world, and especially the law of Moses, has control over someone until they come to a certain point in their life and he wants to impose that upon the idea of salvation. So in Galatians 4.1 he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. So even though all things in a family would be a two-year-old child's possession one day. They need to have tutors over them. They need to have stewards over them. In fact, I think they were tutored up until the time of 14, and they could not become full rights and inheritance of the privileges until they were 25 in a first-century context. So it earlier times, the last thing you want is a, is a three-year-old making real estate decisions, okay? You don't want that. Which one has a playground? You don't want that, okay? So notice, they differ at all from a slave as he's the owner of everything, verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also, or in the same way that that works out in their first century context, we, personal inclusive pronoun, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we, Paul included, might receive the adoption as sons. What brings us into the opportunity or the standing, the adoption of sons? The blood of Christ is what has bought this. In other words, you have this incredible, supernatural, celestial, familial relationship with the almighty creator of all things because Christ died to make it so. This is what makes this family relationship grace. This is what makes it say, wait a second, I have all the rights and privileges in this and I was in a bad way before this, but I still have to give praise to God to come back to this situation. In fact, when we look later on in Ephesians 1.5, it says He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. Without His blood, you wouldn't be there. Without the giving of His body, you wouldn't be there. Everybody remember that moment when He's in the garden? And He's agonizing before the Father so much in prayer that it says that the sweat on His forehead became like, didn't become drops of blood, became like drops of blood. He's just streaming with this. And He's seeking the face of the Father over this situation. Agonizing. I don't think He was agonizing over the pain of the cross. I think He was agonizing over what it was to hold the sins of the world of every person for all time upon His one person completely. That's what He died for. That's why you and I can walk through here and say, you know what, I'm sin-free. Not that you're sinless. We still sin. But we are sin-free even though we sin. Why? Because Jesus already paid for it. So notice it's his blood that even bothered to get the opportunity available to us of which then it would be afforded to us once we are believers in Christ. Does that make sense? The blood is what purchases the opportunity. Now how about this? Romans 8. Turn to the left with me a little bit. I know we were just there, but I wanted to do them in a certain order so that you could grasp this. We're going to set up some tent stakes in Romans 8 for a second. Notice in Romans 8, verse 15. I'm going to read the verse. We're going to back up and then get some context flowing into it. But I just want you to see that it's here. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, if we would have continued reading in the Galatians text that we were just in, you would see that part of our connection in the family as being sons and daughter of God leads us to call out Abba, Father. What is Abba? It's an Aramaic term that means Daddy. I don't know about you, but only the sweetest kids call their father daddy, right? Wait a second, was that me? Just kidding. The idea is the intimacy. Do you see that? The closeness. The whether I'm hurt or whether I'm joyful. There's always a reservation on the lap of God for me. Does everybody see that? It's incredibly parental and personal. Now watch this. This is interesting. Back up with me to verse 12. So then, brethren, notice that he's talking in this idea of corporate terms. He's talking to believers. So then, brethren, we, there it is, are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why? If for no other reason that God's not interested in it, he can't use it and he's not going to reform it. He's not interested in the old us. The flesh is the sin nature. What desires to commit sins in our lives. But look what he says here in verse 13. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. In other words, if you're just fulfilling the fleshly desires in your life, it'll kill you. Notice he's talking to believers. Believers have a choice. Will I live according to the flesh or will I live according to the spirit? Now watch what he says here. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And how does a believer live when they are putting to death the deeds of the body? Abundantly. Abundantly. Look over at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You say, okay, wait a second. I thought you just told me that Jesus purchased it with His blood, made it available to me, and if I'm in Christ, I'm automatically a son. You are. But let me ask you this. Does the world know that you're a son? Do believers around you know that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High? I tell you one way that they will know is because you are following the leading of the Spirit in your life. If you are led by the Spirit, you demonstrate your sonship to everyone. You live in such a way to where your familial connection with God through Christ is indisputable. Does that make sense? Now, there's a whole lot of beauty in this. In fact, I can't even tell you, I had to find a quote that was better. When I found this quote, I cried. Are we empowered in our adoption as sons? It's not just a standing. It gives empowerment. If you would live indeed, you must do sin to death by the Spirit. And this means, in another aspect, that you must yield yourselves to be led along by the Spirit with that leading which is sure to conduct you always away from self and into the will of God. You must welcome the indweller to have his holy way with your springs of thought and will. So and only so will you truly answer the idea, the description, sons of God. That glorious term, never to be satisfied by the relation of mere creaturehood or by that of merely exterior sanctification, mere membership in the community of men, though it be the visible church itself. But... If you so meet sin by the Spirit, if you are so led by the Spirit, you do show yourselves nothing less than God's own sons. He has called you to nothing lower than sonship, to vital connection with a divine Father's life and to the eternal embraces of His love. For when He gave and you received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise who reveals Christ and joins you to him. What did that spirit do in his heavenly operation? Did he lead you back to the old position in which you shrunk from God as from a master who bound you against your will? Is that where the spirit led you? When you became a believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, did you say, you know what? Go back and do all that stuff you used to do. It was awesome. No, he doesn't lead us there. He leads us deeper. He leads us further. He leads us in supernatural paths. Look what he says there. No, he showed you that in the only son, you are nothing less than sons. Welcomed into the inmost home of eternal life and love. Wow! Wow! Think back to that moment of salvation. Think back to when somebody told you the gospel. And maybe you'd heard it a few times, but for some reason the Holy Spirit was flipping on the light a little stronger this time. And you came to a point in yourself where you thought, I've got to do something about this. I can't just let this moment go again. We started to see a little bit more for some reason. And we recognize, wow, God doesn't need me at all, but He wants me. And boy, what did He do in order to get me? He did a lot to get me. He did a lot to get you. Because He wanted you. He wanted you. He wanted me. Stop for a second. Dream with me. He wanted me. I know, man. You know what the sad part about that is? Sometimes I don't want me. Sometimes I look at myself and I'm like, I'm done with you today. You know? Just because we come to the end of ourselves. And usually that's because I'm walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Because I don't have the things of God out in front of me and leading my thoughts, my actions, my plans, my life, whatever it is. I'm settling for less than sonship in those situations now here's the beautiful thing about grace get this even in those moments when we settle less for sonship and our choices we never stop being sons isn't that the beauty of the cross even though you have driven that rut before in your past life and you find that your jeep's going down that road now it doesn't change the fact that i've already translated you into a greater place Full acceptance, forgiveness of sin, absolute obliteration. Get this, absolute obliteration of self-effort. The Christian life is not about trying, it's about trusting. If we trust, the works flow out. But I tell you what, this adoption of sons makes me want to obey him more. It makes me realize that if he has pulled me in to this gracious love position, why would I not want to lay everything I have before him and do that? Now watch how he relates this. If you're led by the Spirit and therefore everybody around you can see that you're a son because you're demonstrating son stuff. I don't know about you, but I need more son stuff in my life. And to demonstrate that, how beautiful that is. Look at what the text says, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Think about what Paul's saying here in connection with the value and weight of adoption as sons. Anybody in, don't raise your hand. I'm not here to embarrass you. But think to yourself, do you struggle with fear? Do you struggle with moments of irrational anxiety? Moments where you can't catch your breath? moments where you feel like that everything is caving on you at one moment even though you're not doing a thing you're just sitting there and you think what in the world is going on and then you can hear satan mosey on up on your shoulder and go do you think that saved people would feel this way well maybe it was that one thing you said to that person "Ah, that's pretty condemning right there we have our young people today that are dealing with ridiculous amounts of pressure And they're getting crushed by ridiculous amounts of anxiety and fear. They are scared to death. You know how I know that? Look at their Facebook. Look at their Facebook. The Facebook is the window of the soul for the young person. Look at it. It is clamoring for acceptance. It's clamoring for, say, somebody value me, somebody like me, somebody pay attention to me, somebody love me. What's incredible is, is all those posts have found their answer in Jesus Christ our Lord. Every bit of them. Why is that? Because he can take that young person who has responded to the gospel and say, you have forever life, you have expungement of all of your sins, and I have drawn you as my own. You are my dear, precious daughter. He doesn't let that go. I don't care how wayward and sinful a child may get. They are always in a position of acceptance with their mother and their father. There may not be a lot of approval for choices that are made. There might even be some pretty severe disapproval or disagreement over a situation. They never stop being the family. It's the same with God. It's the same with God. Again, guys, we clamor too much after self-esteem and we ignore God-esteem. And God-esteem is infinitely greater And it's all listed right here. Notice, if you're experiencing fear in your life, know this one thing. It's not from God. God didn't give you that spirit. Well, what spirit did he give me then? Look what it says. But you have received, already so, a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Daddy! Help! Father, meet me where I'm at. You think he'll do that? Oh, in spades. Absolutely. Now, we need to move on here. Interest of time. But I could camp out here and have a picnic all day. Because this is rich. It's God letting me know my life has changed. And my responsibility is to recognize where I'm not meeting up with his reality. That means that something's got to change in me in the way I think about myself because God sees me as better than what I'm settling for. God's given me way more grace than what I'm giving myself and God is abounding so much more love than what I think I deserve. Guys, let's get over the fact we're never going to deserve it. That's just the reality of salvation. We never deserved it. So let's rest in that fact and then let's do something that the British say and get on with it, okay? Let's do that. Move on because there are greener pastures. And greater vistas that Christ has secured for us. Look what it says here. we got to follow the argument. Verse 16. The Spirit himself, Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I don't have time to go into that, but if you read the notes online, they're there. Okay? So now, watch this, how it unfolds. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are you suffering in this present time? Are you going through hardship in this present time? Here's what Paul's saying. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul and me and you. Whatever you're going through now God has established glory that is out ahead for His sons and daughters that is guaranteed to happen. And when it comes time to see and experience that glory firsthand in the future, He's going to say, you won't even think about the speck of dust that was this moment. There is no way because when it's held up to the light, it will burn away. It has no place in the presence of the Lord. Watch how this moves forward here. He's going to explain this, verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the who? Sons of God. We know something about natural disasters, yes? We see them happen. People report them on the news. You get your little internet feed and usually something's come up where things went south real quick environmentally. God's creation of this earth has a longing to it. It has a desire that is greater than what's going on now. It's waiting for a moment in time. Get this. The revealing of the sons of God. Now, trivia question. Who's that? Us. And Paul. Let's include him, right? But it's us. When the creation is freaking out, it's waiting for us to be revealed. Does that mean I need to live the certain way? No, 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 no. Calm down, calm down. This is all God's doing of what he's going to do. And it's much greater than what we can handle in and of ourselves. Let's follow Paul's thought. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. Everybody see that? You know what eagerly is? It's this. Right? Eagerly. Eagerly. It's like when you pull a piece of cake out for a kid and they go, ooh. it's like that i know you do jay that's why i said kid uh moving on for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly the creation didn't sin that's not the problem but it's in a futile state now but because of him who subjected it in hope in other words god didn't let the creation fall into sin without a resolve that was going to take place later there was a plan in place of how he was going to deal with it it's not just about redeeming us guys he's going to redeem this entire creation so watch this that the creation itself verse 21 also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of god who's that Woo! right now watch this verse 22 for we know That the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Even up to the present day, we can see the travail of the earth. Now watch what happens here. Verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, super personal inclusive pronoun, having the first fruits of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. It is a deposit guaranteeing something that is to come. We'll deal with that more when we get into verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1. But watch what he says. You've got a tiny little sliver of the Spirit now, and something is going to happen. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Pause. Raise your hand if you've ever groaned within yourself over something. Right? You learned a new vocabulary. Good googly moogly. What is going on? What's that? Out loud, even. Either with myself, how my body's breaking down. Guys, I'm 45. My knee should not hurt like this when I walk upstairs. I don't know. I just I'm just saying. You know? Yeah. My best friend is Ben Gay. That's who it is. You know? I mean, seriously. You guys know. You guys know we groan inwardly why look at what that groaning is verse 23 waiting eagerly you know what that means when i'm going ow oh Ugh! that's how you know when you're getting older you sit down you're like oh you make a sound right you know what that is it's your body going can't wait something's going to happen i can't wait all those aches and pains. If you put Bengay on, you're actually covering up the eager waiting. No Tylenol on this one, man. So notice it. Waiting eagerly for what? For our adoption as sons. And notice what he qualifies it as being. Pay attention, because right here Paul puts all the pieces together. The glorification of what? What's it say? The redemption of our bodies. Redemption is the idea of buying back. But notice it has to deal with our bodies. Does everybody see that Paul is listing this as a future event? Here's what he's telling you. When your aches and pains are driving you nuts and you see the world falling all over itself, here's one thing that you know. We're all crying out for the rapture to take place. Because when the rapture happens is when this body now takes on a glorified form and can actually stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And at that moment, we're saved from the absolute presence of sin. And we're waiting for that day when our adoption is fully complete. It started at the moment of faith. And when we got in Christ, we had now been predestined by God as part of the people in Christ to also receive a sonship and daughtership that is absolutely instantaneous, but has a glorious end to it. And so it's the idea that we have a partial fulfillment of His promise and the fact that that's our standing. I am a son of God. No one can take that from me. I have the opportunity in my life to live as a son of God when I throw up my hands and I yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, He's going to bring the whole thing to completion when He brings me unto Himself and I don't have to wait eagerly and longingly anymore. I'm there. For those believers that have passed away, Their spirit and their soul are already with the Lord in heaven. But the grand scheme of the rapture is the idea that the body of the passed away saint is brought up and transformed into an imperishable form and united back again with the spirit and the soul. It's stinking amazing, man i love that the lord blows minds and he says here's what i have in store for you you know what this does good grief there's a lot of hope in this good grief it makes me realize that whatever we're dealing with in this present day we can endure not for the fact that we've got to pull it all together and make it all work the pressure's off if the end is guaranteed You know what that makes me want to do? Fly like an eagle. Exactly. Man. Thank you, Steve Miller. Good grief. How beautiful is God's promises? How incredible is his heart for us? I don't know about you, but I know me. I don't think I'd be that excited about me. He is excited about us. He's excited about us. What are some applications we can pull from this? First thing is, our family is a family of God in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have full rights, you have full privileges. In fact, John 1.12 tells you, To as many as received Him, He has given them the right, some translations say authority, to be called His children, those who have believed in His name. Now, the fact that we have full rights and full privileges goes perfectly with the idea that we have every spiritual blessing. You lack nothing in the presence of God. Nothing. Nothing at all. Another interesting one is that our adoption will be complete at the rapture. There's a God-glorifying end. There's a resolve. There's a hope out ahead. There's a promise waiting to be fulfilled for the people of God. And even though we groan now, remember the groanings are the yearnings for redemption to be full and complete. For us to be bought off of this world so that we could be fully and frontally, let's just be honest, personally, with our Master, Lord, and Savior. It's all by His means that we got there in the first place. How about this one? When we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we truly live as God's sons and daughters now. In other words, this goes back to the whole idea of the Christ life. When I'm sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in me, when I'm relying on God to be the one who is my compass every day, what I actually find is I start making choices that are different from myself because it's God showing his life through me. And when that happens, I begin to taste the abundant life. I begin to demonstrate to everybody around me supernatural behavior and the fact that I am a son and daughter. Here's the great thing about that if, if we would just trust Him with it. That means that all the masks that we have in that imaginary backpack that we pull out depending on who's around and how we got to act, all that can just burn up and go away because we just need to lean into the Spirit. Don't play like some people don't come here and play church. We don't have to show up and play church. We are the church. So often we're trying to be things that we already are and that God's given us more abundantly than what we're trying to settle for. Take the masks off and throw them away. Be a real person with people. You really hate something? Great. Tell them and work it out. Be honest. Be truthful. Be sensitive to the Spirit so that we have love throwing through us. us. We have discernment going on. We're all about wanting to promote the goodness of these things, that we're living an opportunity of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you realize you're related to me? Lord, have mercy on you. But in Christ, it's not only so, it's glorious. And we can live like this. The last thing. Being in God's family is permanent. It's permanent. It's more permanent than super glue or gorilla glue. It's permanent. Absolutely unable to stop in any way. Our relationship with Him does not and cannot change ever. If you've ever struggled with the assurance of your salvation, understand that it's always been secure because the Father said so and the work that He required has been done perfectly. Nothing else is needed. Trust God in His Word. Believe what He said about you and rest in His unconditional love of you. It's full. It's complete. It's always. It's always in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, but also the fact that they are complete. You have brought us in. You've adopted us. You've placed us as sons and daughters under the shadow of Your wings. You are a shield. You are a stronghold. You are our refuge. You know us intimately. You understand us personally. And Lord, when we cry out because we suffer through issues in this life, we deal with trials, we have pains. Lord, we're just broken down. Father, whatever it may be, Lord, You've given us a hope out ahead. You've not left us listless on the waves but you've guaranteed a shore for our hopes. God, thank you for being abundantly beyond whatever we could ever ask or think. Father, if we've ever struggled with our salvation, I pray today would be the day that's a settled deal. If we understand that we don't have salvation because we've never trusted in Christ, today we would respond to the gospel in faith. Maybe we've just never been able to deal with our brothers and sisters recognizing that that family relationship is so precious in Your sight and You've done so much to secure it. Father, I pray renew in us a new reliance on the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that if we find that we're always stressing ourselves out because we think we have to fix it, that we would lean on You and trust Your leading. Or if we're just ruled by fear, that we would rest in Your acceptance of us. God, there's so much to be thankful and You are so praiseworthy on every front. Thank You, Jesus. That your love is massive. We pray all this before you and in his name. Amen.